Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name's Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket podcast. Huawei has revealed a bevy of new products this week, including a new tablet and smartwatch. Pocalint's Cam Bunton has not only been following the announcement, but guess what, has also been playing with a new kit in his house and is here to discuss what it means for those keen to embrace a new alternative to Google's Android. Meanwhile, I've been chatting to biologist, adventurer and TV presenter Steve Bagshaw about what we can be doing to appreciate the sea life on our doorstep. And Pocalint's Adrian Willings has been enjoying virtual reality thanks to the new HTC Vive Pro 2 headset. Are we at the point where it's hard to understand what's really real, or is it just still very much a virtual playground? Stay tuned to find out. But first, back to you, Cam. Tell us more about what Huawei has launched this week. Everything. Everything. (laughs) I think it's everything. Huawei is one of those companies that has its fingers in many pies, if you want to call it that. Um, But the big story this week is obviously Harmony OS. Uh, It's now up to Harmony OS 2, and that's their new operating system that's designed to work across a range of different products. So it'll adapt to fit whatever it is it's running on, but also means that those devices will then play nicely together and allow you to do things like seamlessly connect them to each other. So that's from a software point of view. What's What's from the hardware? So hardware, they, um, they obviously there's the Huawei Watch 3, the first watch to run Harmony OS, and then there's the MatePad Pro, which is sort of like a, an iPad Pro clone, I think it's safe to say. Um, those are the two main products they launched this week, but they've also announced new earphones, new monitors. So they're, they're doing a lot of stuff. And in terms of the the software on, on, these new, on the new smartwatch, that obviously runs Harmony OS as well. What's the experience like? Is it does it feel like Android? Is it Android? Is it something completely different? Well, the watch. This is where it gets a little bit complicated. The watch feels quite similar to the software that it was running in the previous generations of Huawei Watch, which was called Light OS. They just sort of ramped it up to make it feel a bit more like a fully interactive smart a smartwatch operating system. Um, and this watch has features that their other ones didn't have, like eSIM support, which currently is only available in China. So you can make calls and stream music on your wrist without your phone having to be nearby. Um, accidental fall detection, even um, yeah, music streaming, taking calls and messages, and even installing apps directly on your wrist. So it's very much a case of catching up with Apple Watch and Wear OS watches in that regard. On the tablet side, um, Harmony OS on tablets, as far as we're aware, it, it looks, I mean, it, like we've said, it looks a lot like iPad OS and shares a lot of features. But when you deep, when you dive deep down into the software, it still seems to be based on Android, like they're operating the um, open source version of Android. So it's it's not a fully brand new foundation that they've laid. It's more, they've done more on top of the Android, but it just doesn't feel like that, if it makes sense. It's more responsive and fluid and adapted to fit this big tablet size. 
And so do you think that there's some potentials here for when these these aren't available yet, are they? They're coming soon. Yeah. Are they going to be, do they have enough smarts to kind of really offer a viable alternative or are we still struggling with that? It doesn't run Google Apps story. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, on the tablet side, it, it does feel a bit like that. But I think with the tablet, we use tablets, I think, in, a, in quite a different way to how we use our smartphone. So our smartphone is all about having apps on a small screen in your pocket that allow you to play games or do whatever you need to do. I know me personally, when I'm using a tablet, it's for very different purposes. It's mostly for making it, you can make video calls or uh, writing documents or keeping up with any productivity tasks as well as creativity tasks. And for those sort of things, it still works really well. You can download uh, apps on it. It comes with Microsoft Office on it for those people who are still tied to that Microsoft Office 365 platform. Mm. So it doesn't feel as limited as a phone might. And actually, it's it's been a really quite a pleasant experience using it because the interface, like I said, it's a bit of a clone of iPad OS. And we know that iPad OS is a great tablet operating system. So it's a, I guess if you're going to copy something, you copy something that's actually good. And they've, they've done it pretty well. Still to come, Adrian gives us his verdict on the HTC Vive Pro 2 VR headset. The best tracking and the best visuals possible with also a healthy dose of comfort and convenience although, you know, it lacks in the setups. New research has revealed that a whopping 83% of people are surprised by what lives on and around our coastlines in the UK. The research is part of the Sky Ocean Rescue and WWF Ocean Hero campaign, which champions how our British seas and vibrant marine wildlife are some of the unsung heroes in the fight against climate change. To date, 250,000 people in the UK have already signed up to be an ocean hero, but the campaign wants more to get involved in helping to protect our seas for the future. I recently caught up with biologist and broadcaster Steve Blackshaw to talk about the initiative and to find out how technology has changed the way he has worked over the last two decades. I started by asking him what made him want to support the project in the first place. So to me, the oceans are both hypnotic and exciting and filled with natural wonders and something that I've always found absolutely fixating and fascinating ever since I was a child. But also they are an area which is horrifically under threat and pressure, but also has tremendous potential for, um, for positivity for our future as well. So when I was asked to be a, a part of this campaign, I, I kind of thought for a for about a millisecond by hmm. saying yes. And, you know, to be here today outside the Houses of Parliament with not one, but two Secretary of States for the Environment kind of coming over, showing their support, accepting our, our petition and saying, right, so what can we do next? Is one of those moments where you think, yes, this, this can work. This can actually lead to a, a, a better future. Now, a lot of times... In, when we presented with major crises such as climate change and, and, and things like that, we have a tendency to try and solve the problems with new tech innovations and newfangled ways of doing things and stuff like that. How much do you think the problem that you're trying to fight, the campaign that you're, you're calling for action for, is to do with just changing our general behavior and attitude? Or is it something that you think tech can just be swung in to solve the problem and save the day? Um, 
I have a feeling from the way you phrase that question that you you kind of know the answer to that. Hmm. It's it is a hugely hugely complex problem. It, in some ways, the complexity is our our biggest problem, really, because the the easiest issues for us to to mobilize people to try and solve are the ones that have a simple solution. That's one of the reasons why the people so many people have mobilized with the single-use plastic crisis is because there are so many obvious ways that each and every one of us can make a difference. And with anthropogenic climate change, it's so much harder. It's so much more complex. And we are all, um, I think, in the science community, very, very wary of anything that appears to be a great technological solution that could instantly solve climate change because that simple solution doesn't exist. There is no magic bullet. And suggesting there is, is is very dangerous. I, I believe that uh, President Biden uh, uh, actually has come under fire recently for, for, for suggesting just that, for suggesting that there might be some technological solution off in the future that will make everything easy. Well, there isn't. It is going to be a tough problem to, to solve. But that is not to say that, that technology uh, doesn't have a huge, huge role to play. And in, uh, to a certain extent, it's technology that allows us to ascertain how our natural resources can be a huge part of the solution and how protecting things that we have had for millennia it is not in some ways more important than actually you know, coming up with revolutionary new, new tech ways of, uh, of solving the problem. Science has enabled us to to quantify climate change, to to uh, to ascertain what's happening and how the effects could, you know, change our planet in catastrophic ways. And it is also a massive, massive part of all potential solutions. Now, many many of our listeners will recognise you from your many adventures uh, across the globe, going into far flung places that kind of you know a void of, of civilization and, and other things as you sort of go down rivers and transverse mountain faces and all the other stuff. How has technology helped you to do the things that you do in, in the wild? <laughs> so, just just for example, um, I leave next week to head to the mountains of Kyrgyzstan. And we are looking to find, um, to map, and to uh, to quantify the population of critically endangered snow leopards in those mountains. Wow. And part of that is going to be, well, certainly my part of it, because I'm a massive technophobe and an old-fashioned naturalist. My side of things will be looking for scat and scrapes and using my binoculars to scan the hillsides looking for signs of snow leopard in the same way that I have been doing for the last 20 years. My colleagues are going to be flying drones with thermal imaging cameras and using starlight cameras and, and uh, thermal imaging cameras with a you know thousand millimeter lens on them. They'll be using uh, DNA barcoding to sequence individual animals from their scat and from the um, probably 60 or 70 remote camera traps that we'll be placing in the mountains to to watch for us when we are fast asleep in our tents, they will be identifying individual animals from their their spot patterns, which are as individual to them as fingerprints are to us. So technology in, in, in that case will, will be everything. It will be the difference between me doing things the same way that naturalists have done for 200 years to 
doing things in a in a much much more effective modern technological way and do you feel that's that's that is that's going to help you achieve it or do you think that there is still a strong place for those you know getting the binoculars out doing the proper tracking as it sounds like you really enjoy doing that bit and the technology is kind of a, a bonus on the side yeah i mean if um, if technology does completely overwhelm old-fashioned naturalist skills then i am out of a job because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there's no way i'm going to be the one flying the thermal drone that's for sure no one would let me anywhere near it um there's there, there will always be a place for for old-fashioned naturalist skills and i think that um more than anything for for individuals and for, for our own uh well-being and development those skills are more important now than more than any other time in history and certainly I've, I've kind of been finding over the last year when people have been you know struggling to reconnect with nature and appreciating the nature in a different way to the, how they ever have done before just introducing people to those simple naturalist skills whether it's as simple as being able to read the tracks and signs that animals leave behind or to to be able to recognize birds from their bird calls or from their calls or, or to be able to recognize the other animals that are around from the alarm calls of certain birds all of those skills actually are hugely important to us they, they give us a, a greater awareness of and interaction with our environment I, I feel like my life is much more rich and full for having those those skills and I, I certainly know there's an awful lot of people out there that that feel the same and you feel obviously a lot of your stuff is is documentary based and you know you're there with camera crews and, and things like that has the you know has the technology changed obviously the technology has changed over the last 20 years that you've been doing this but has that job become easier you know is that has that enhanced what the stories that you can tell that's a really good question because in some ways it really has and in some ways it's become a lot harder i mean a, a classic way that it's become easier is that when I first started out making documentaries in the, the late 1990s. If we wanted to have a, a helmet cam or a, if I wanted to have a camera on my kayak, then I had to have a camera with a lead from that into a big box, which was strapped on to the side of whatever I, I had or, or was in a rucksack that I was carrying around at all times. And the battery and the tape would have to be changed every 20 minutes. And, and it, it was a an absolute nightmare and now you can stick on a camera the size of a thimble and just go pretty much all day you know it that is one way that it's been made much much easier um ways that it's been made harder well if you have more tech and more kit then everywhere you go you have to um, this this expedition we're going into the mountains and we're going to be like four and a half thousand meters above sea level and some poor person is going to have to be sat in a tent with a laptop downloading hours and hours of 4K video footage onto their onto the yeah. laptop until you know three o'clock in the morning when it's minus three degrees. That it, it cuts both ways, you know. And do you feel therefore the pressure of of you know the YouTube generation expecting more and more and, and better quality and, and better shots and you know it takes a lot more to excite those that audiences now those audiences and therefore that makes your does that make your job harder people are much more sophisticated they're much more aware of what is what is real and what is not um what's what's been staged and what is fake false jeopardy but i i feel that that kind of plays into my hands because i've you know i i I started off um doing expeditions where it would be just literally me and the camera and I have, have really tried, I hope people agree, I've re- really tried through my career to try and make things that are 
absolutely real that do not have any elements of, of artifice to them and that actually fit quite well with the the modern aesthetic of, of filmmaking and in terms of quality I, I think that we're at a strange time now where we have 8k video mm. filmed in super super slow-mo and you know everything is incredibly glorious and glossy and then you know the majority of footage that people are watching now has probably been made on their film on their phones and i think one of the key things is that if the stuff is good enough people will people will put up with quality that is um that is ordinary or unspectacular if the the message the content or the or the moment is special enough yeah yeah no, i agree i think there's, there's that sense of you know there is making making sometimes making it for making its sake rather than forgetting about the story that you're supposed to be telling or the moment that you're supposed to be in it's always that moment when you go to something you know a beautiful waterfall somewhere and everybody's looking at it in their phones rather than actually enjoying the waterfall that's in front of them that that is that is also true but then I, I think that for me, because my my working life is is very much like that, and I absolutely cannot, as you say, ever appreciate anything that is perfection and that is uh, you know wonderfully wild. Because I'm always thinking I should be filming that, I should be filming that, I should be filming that. But then again, the flip side of that is because I've been doing this for twenty years. When I'm home with the family, I'm I'm actually pretty good at putting the phone away. And, you know, just enjoying moments for, for what they are. And I, I think, you know, I'd encourage anyone who particularly has a young family to do that. It's so it's so, so tempting to find yourself, you know, looking at I've got I've got three kids, all of whom are you know under three years of age. And every single thing they do is filmable. And it's very tempting to just sit there with your phone pointed at your child rather than, you know, actually savoring the seconds. And so back to the Ocean Hero project and the campaign, how obviously you've sent the, the petition to, to, uh, to the parliament. How, how can people get involved if they want to? So I think the first thing to do would be to, to head to our app, which has a, uh, a whole range, and it's also on the, uh, the WWF website as well. It has a whole array of different marine wonders that we have here in this country, the best places to find them and some suggestions and links towards how um, how people can actually do their bit to try and protect them. Um, I think that it's a really, a really important first step what we've done today, you know, talking on the day that the Environment Bill is being debated in Parliament to two Secretary of States for the Environment about how important our ocean environments are, how, how massive bigger and better marine protected areas are um, both for wildlife and for biodiversity, but also for, uh, you know, the, the fight against anthropogenic climate change. Um, I, I think that, you know, at least 250,000 people have already got involved, have already shown that they are willing to try and take action. And now let's spread that out to, to as many different people as we can. The first step I think is, is enticing them in with the, the promise of marine wonders that they, they probably don't know that we have and that we don't know that they don't know are in our seas. You know, how many people know that, that we have 40 species of sharks in our seas that you can see minke whales, humpback whales, sperm whales, blue whales even, that we have orca hunting off the coast of the UK. How many people know that we have, you know, the lion's mane jellyfish, probably the biggest in the world here in our seas, or the long-stouted seahorse or the colour-changing cuttlefish. We have marine wonders to, to match anywhere else on the planet 
And the second people engage with that is the second that they, you know, in the words of Jacques Cousteau, people protect what they love. Learn to love something first, and then you'll want to find a way to conserve it. When you first play with the new Vive Pro 2, you could easily be forgiven for thinking it's virtually the same VR headset that the company released back in 2018, even though under the hood, things have been beefed up quite significantly. But is an upgraded Pro enough to handle the now strong competition from HP and Oculus? Pocket Adrian Willings has been using the new headset and is here to tell us more. So, Adrian, is it any good? Uh, with a quick summary of that is yes, yes, it's very good. Okay. It's um, a significant upgrade to the previous Pro. As you said, it's been a few years since they launched that, and that was a very high-level VR headset that was sort of aimed at high-end PC gamers and some business elements to it. And now they've gone back to that, which is a good step for them because the previous offering from HTC in the form of the Cosmos was sort of hit and miss. Some people had a lot of problems with it. I had some issues with it and the inside out tracking wasn't that great. So they've gone back to sort of basics, well not basics, but they've gone back to the premium high-end device which uses the proper tracking base stations and a much more sophisticated setup to deliver a better experience. But at the same time, they've also taken the Vive Pro, which was a very solid foundation, and then just improved upon it. So a lot of the same things are there. It has the same sort of overall look and feel, has the same um, ear cups and speakers. It has the same sort of headband design, has the same sort of comfort. But under the hood, uh, this is where the power has been changed as a improved display with the highest pixel density currently available and also has 120 hertz refresh rate in a 120 degree field of view and so if you're into your if you're into your vr and and i presume this is kind of trying to be that top of the range like answering all your prayers and excitements about what you need is it kind of you know and does that in itself kind of set it apart from 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 the competition in the sense of well, if you just want everything go for this yes Absolutely. It has the best tracking and the best visuals possible with also a healthy dose of comfort and convenience, although, you know, it lacks in the setup. So you mentioned the HP Reverb G2 was a previous sort of high-end device, and that's still worth looking at if you don't want the hassle of having to set up the base station because it has inside-out tracking cameras on the device itself so it can track the outside world, but the tracking isn't as good as with the Vive Pro 2. And the screen isn't as good either. So this is really a step up. It's also a very expensive device. So it's aimed at people with a lot of money and with a very powerful PC that's able to power that's that, that high-end display, which has a lot of pixels in it and therefore requires a powerful and I suppose GPU and to run. That's the payoff, isn't it? Is that you, you need to buy this, but then in addition to buying the headset, you need to buy obviously the controllers. And then the this isn't wire-free, is it? You've still got the the cable leading to a PC, and the PC's got to be a beefy PC. It's you're not just going to run this off your laptop. Yeah, absolutely. You can buy the headset on its own as an upgrade if you have the previous Vive Pro or the original Vive, and use the controllers from those as well, which is a more affordable way of doing it. Or you get the whole package, which is a lot more expensive, and that includes everything you need. But then, yes, you need a PC as well. You can go wireless with an extra purchase of a wireless adapter, but HTC has said at the moment you won't get the same experience because they're not able to send the signal for such a 
a high-end display over the air. So you'll actually get a reduced experience doing that. Um, you have the benefit of being wire-free, but then you, you're reducing the visual display, so you're not getting as good an experience. But that experience is certainly very good. Tried quite a few different games out on it, ones that I've played previously, including Half-Life Alex, which is a very nice-looking game, and it was certainly a magnificent experience. And they've done a really good job with the design of the headset because it's well-balanced and comfortable to wear for hours. I was using it for hours on end, and it was fine. You can it blocks out a lot of the external light and you you're immersed in the experience and get to see what's going on in the game and concentrate on that but also you can use those front facing cameras turn those on and get a view of the room around you and where you are so you don't end up getting disorientated or knocking into things by accident without having to take the headset off so it's really conveniently built gives you a wonderful vr experience and an immersive one as well so it's worth the money if you can afford it but it is a very expensive device and and do you think we'll get to a point where hcc delivers the kind of completely wi-free pc free experience that will be as good as this or are they not trying to to do that here well we spoke to them about it and we had the briefing for the vive pro 2 because um, a few weeks before that was announced there was a leak of the Vive Air, which was seen as an Oculus Quest 2 competitor, so a standalone VR headset, an all-in-one device that wouldn't require a PC to run but could potentially be tethered wirelessly to a PC. And uh, they said that they weren't going to do an Oculus Quest 2 competitor for the consumer market because they couldn't compete with Oculus in terms of price because a headset with that sort of spec similar to the Vive Pro 2 um, would cost somewhere around £800 or $800, uh, which is twice to three mm. times as much as the Quest 2 and might put people off. And the reason for that is because they are, want to have a focus on privacy for your data, whereas Oculus is quite happy to use your data to sell ads and therefore recoup some of the loss that they'd make on the hardware that way, which was an interesting sort of insight into that world. And HTC's also released the uh, Focus, which is a standalone headset, and it offers a very similar spec to the Vive Pro 2, but unfortunately it's only for business. It's only for business right. use at this point. So uh, you might see it in VR arcades, they suggested, but generally it's going to be for sort of business-to-business business use and um, sort of design work and things like that. So it's a real shame, I think, because freedom of untethered vr is something to be admired it's uh, certainly magnificent and if they could have done a really good competitor it would have been nice to see some more sort of freedom in that space and something away from oculus which requires a facebook login which a lot of people are averse to and don't really like the idea of so it's a real shame that htc can't manage this but it makes sense why they're not that's it for this week's show thanks for listening until next time pip pip